today's lesson text kind of dovetails a lot of what we've been looking at with leadership, but it picks back up our series on the gospel according to Mark, because this year for Lenten season, we're going to do a good old-fashioned Lent by looking at Mark's crucifixion narrative, and thus finishing the gospel that we have been going through for this entire year, and Mark being the foundation on which Luke and Matthew is built in some scholarly opinions, kind of gives you a three-for-one benefit. So, let us continue with the Gospel according to Mark. I am skipping a couple verses here, which are the only ones I'll skip in Mark because I've handled them in two other sermons. And we will pick it up on chapter 10, verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to the disciples, Let the little children come to me, do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. He asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. The young man replied to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept these all since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was shocked. And he went away grieving, for he was rich and had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields, for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray through the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. We may bring honor and glory to you. Amen. 
So again, as I skipped some of those verses as I've already preached them, again, we shall be very quick in handling the first section of today's teaching, the little children coming to Jesus. It's important just to note here that the idea of the pure, innocent child is Victorian. Something that comes from England, not the ancient world. And in the ancient world, the best way to explain their attitude towards children is the children's table. How many of you growing up have been rele were relegated away from the adult conversations to have to go eat with the little kids? That's something that especially irks teenagers. And that was very much the view of children in the ancient world. In fact, they were seen as an annoyance, incompetent, and today we, we are aghast at people who want restaurants that don't allow children in them. In this world, the idea that you would ever take a child into a restaurant would have them shocked. So when the disciples rebuke the people bringing the children to Jesus, it's really because this is adult stuff, and children who are of no account shouldn't be bothering us about it. So when Jesus says here that whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child will never enter it, he is not talking about some Victorian ideal of being an innocent child. All you have to do to see that the early church didn't believe that is read Augustine on original sin. What he is more saying is that no one who will not enter the kingdom of God as someone who is seen as nothing, as an annoyance, as who belongs at the kid table, will enter the kingdom of God. And that's backed up by the next section, which as when we were starting with Mark, I explained Mark likes to sandwich things together. He likes to have one story, another story, and then wrap it up with a good explanation of all of it. So we have to take this story of the little children coming to Jesus and apply it to the next one where I will focus most of my effort today. So as it happens, a young man comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First off, this shows that this, this man was unhappy with something. He had a yearning, and he does good so far as <coughs> he realizes in Jesus is the fulfillment for whatever his life seems to be lacking. And he comes up to Christ, and he asks him, Christ, how can I be filled? And Jesus gives him an answer that's a little probative and testing here. Jesus says, basically, to sum it up, you know the commandments. You know all those rules of the law. You know what Moses taught you. You know what makes you a good Jew. Do it. And the young man replies to Jesus in verse 20, Teacher, I have kept these since my youth. Now, I think this one is important. We as Protestants, because we speak about fulfilling the law, tend to think that it was impossible to keep the law. Two very different things. And it is within the realm of possibility that this young man was himself very religious and very devout. And in fact, that kind of adds up to give us a good image of his character. He's a very devout Jew. He has lived his life according to the commandments since he was young. But he senses in living out the law 
in making that his religious focus, something is missing. He even comes to Christ, the source of all good, and says to Christ, Lord, what must I do to get beyond the law, to get to that eternal life that is beyond these things? And Jesus looks at him and loves him. This young man is very close. He stands on the precipice. He has all the moral and outward duties of religion covered. He even has some of the inward aspects of religion that we so value, especially in our post-frontier evangelism Protestant Christianity. He has a yearning for fulfillment, and he even has what we would call the proper object in seeking that fulfillment. He knows religion doesn't satisfy him. He knows Christ is the bread of heaven. And he even desires what Christ can give him. So he then gets nailed with a whammy. You lack one thing, Christ tells him. Go sell what you owe. Give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The reason I call today's lesson self-denial is because Christ here shoots out from under this young man his whole approach to Christ. This is an important one with implications for evangelism and for many of the ways Christianity presents itself in the West. This young man had everything. He had the money. He had the religious obedience, and he was unfulfilled. There was something missing in his life, and he wanted Christ to be that final capstone to give him meaning, to give him that sense of worth and purpose. Now, that sounds awful lot like what we tell people a lot of times they can get from church. Come to church, find Christ, get a sense of purpose and meaning, something beyond yourself. Well, if you cut out that beyond, you get into dangerous territory. This rich young man was a consumer. He was obsessed with building himself. He had built himself up in wealth. He had built himself up in righteousness according to the law. And now he was asking Christ to build up his life so that it would have its final capstone in eternity. And Christ, seeing that, pokes him right in the eye on him by telling him there's one thing that you must do. We like to argue on verse 21 about whether this means we all should go sell everything, but what's really coming on here is Jesus is saying you lack one thing. Go give away yourself. Deny yourself that good food the security that riches bring you, the roof over your head. Give away yourself because you have wrapped yourself so up in wealth and a sense of security. Empty yourself, follow me, and I will fill you. And that's why when in verse 22, the young man hears this, sadly, ultimately, he's shocked and he goes away grieving. He has just come up and been confronted by Christ with the all-time gospel call of 
deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And it has completely shattered his seeking illusions that he could come to Christ with no cross, add all of his benefits onto himself, and be happy. That's why Jesus then turns it into a teaching moment. He looks around and says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, in 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I think, as Americans, it behooves us to remember that we are the globally wealthy. And one of the things I have been reading in many of my studies that has always fascinated me has been how America went secular. If you want to talk about secularism in Europe, that's how religion is replaced by non-religion, it tended to be anti-clericalism. People were hostile towards the church. In America, the switch was a little bit more subtle. The church started to become wrapped up into business. In, in American culture, it's not weird for it's not really weird for us to have a prayer at a board meeting of a corporation. That would never happen in Europe because religion would never touch business, dirty money, but in America, that's perfectly fine. And one of the things that's so fascinating about this is I'm, as I'm watching this change that's happening in the 1800s. Because if you think back to the Puritans, the folks that built this original church before it burned down and we had to rebuild it, for them, being wealthy was always negative because of verses like this. They have rules against obstetation and all sorts of things like that. So how did we end up with a with a evangelism that nine times out of ten, you're rich because you're a good person, you're poor because you're a bad person. And it was a switch as the church went on to the frontier. You could see it from pastor sons changing from their pastor dads. So I think it behooves us to read this and, and, and really kind of apply this to ourselves because we're like the disciples here in verse 24. The disciples were perplexed at these words. I think as disciples, it behooves us to be a little bit perplexed even at these words that this young man who is seeking himself and self-fulfillment and self-purpose in Christ gets a rebuff. Coming to Christ is an effort in self-denial. In fact, it strikes me as rather interesting that all major world religions speak of self-denial until you step into a North American Christian congregation. We forget the fact that in Christ, one of the greatest things we are saved from is ourselves. I really don't like how they change that last verse of, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. But the point of that song, the point of the gospel, is if we ever look to ourselves to be saved, we shall be lost. We look to Christ. We look to what He did. We, in humility, admit that we are unable to do what He has done. Christianity, in and of itself, is about saying, I am unworthy. I will get out of the way. If you want to go with the, I don't like all the implications of it, but the pop culture reference, a big part of this is Jesus take the wheel. He's always had the wheel, that's why I don't like that one, but that is the 
is the emotional input here. Because that's why when the disciples ask, well, if rich people who are good people, who God blesses and makes whole, in verse 26, because that's how they're thinking, when they ask, then who can be saved? And Jesus looks at them and says, for mortals, it is impossible. That's all inclusive. The disciples here are not talking about just wealth in socioeconomic terms. They're talking about wealth in a wealth of keeping the commandments from their youth in verse 20. They're talking about a wealth in having a desire for the good things of God. They're talking about anything that can be good within mortals. And when it comes to salvation and eternal life, it ultimately would render the situation impossible. But Jesus continues in 27, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Jesus is here starting to turn towards Calvary. The ultimate revelation of his glory and goodness as the God-man. Remember, we began our series on Mark with that pressing question that Mark 1. We all fill in ourselves when it says this is the gospel, the Son of God. We all go, oh, I know exactly what the Son of God means. And we fill in our own meaning there. Jesus is here telling us what it means to be the Son of God as he looks towards the cross, which is his ultimate revelation of that. And Jesus then attaches a promise to it that all who give up all these things for the sake of the good news will receive a hundredfold now in this age. And in the age to come, eternal life. Let us pray.